As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. How are you doing? Hi, Tim. Good to be here. And we're really pleased to say we've got another guest on the show today. That's Nick Spencer from the the think tank Theos here in the UK. Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm very grateful to be with you. For those who haven't come across you or the work of of Theos, would you mind giving a little kind of pot of history of yourself and and how you kind of came to be running, working with, with the think tank? Yes. Um, so uh, accident rather than design, I think, would be the best way of putting it, although I'm speaking autobiographically then rather than theologically, I guess. <laughs> um, I, I studied literature and history at university. I loved it. I stumbled into research after that. I found that highly educative. It was commercial and social research. About seven or eight years into doing that, I switched to religious research and social research as well, I guess. I worked for a couple of small Christian think tanks. And then in 2006, I was basically part of the team that set up Theos. Theos is a, a religion and society think tank. We aim basically to tell a better story about faith in general, Christianity specifically in contemporary public life, better in the sense of more accurate. So research lies at the heart of what we do, but also better, hopefully, in the sense of more winsome, more appealing, more cogent, more coherent. Brilliant. And um, yeah, Theos have been, I think, really influential in the public conversation in this country anyway, in terms of improving the quality of the debate, I think, around religion and science. I've, you know, I've certainly been grateful for a lot of their research as a journalist over the years. Um, uh, but we're, we've got you on the show today, Nick, to talk in particular about your most recent book, uh, Magisteria, The Entangled Histories of Science and Religion, which was out earlier this year. And we'll, we'll put some details about how you can get hold of the book in the, in the podcast notes. But do you want to say a little bit about what's the big idea of that book and, and where, did that, where did that idea come from? Yeah, I guess in one way, its genesis is back in 2008, 2009, when we at Theos did a big project in partnership with the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion for the big Darwin anniversary in 2009, 150 years since the publication of The Origin of Species, 200 years since his birth. And um, this was at the time of new atheism, brouhaha, and lots of heat, not necessarily a great delight being shone into that particular debate. And um, I'd had a kind of an active interest in science and religion field for many years beforehand. But I first studied it in real depth that year with specific reference to Darwin himself and evolution more generally. 
And the fascinating thing that came across was that the public opinion was that there had always been tension between science and religion, that religion had always effectively had its foot on science's throat until the point when science got big and powerful enough to throw it off <clears throat> and run the show. And that was because, as I subsequently learned of a couple of hugely influential books that were published 120, 130 years ago, in the academy, certainly since 1980, there'd been an enormous shift and a, a, a train of very eminent and brilliant and actually remarkably likeable scholars as well. They seem to be very nice people who work in this field, had slowly turned that narrative round and had shown that, if anything, religion, anachronistic term, had been hugely supportive to science, another anachronistic term, for many, many, many centuries. That narrative, that academic narrative, had never really filtered through into the public domain. So I did a BBC series on Radio 4 back in 2019, I think it must have been, looking at what the BBC termed the secret history of science and religion. And then Magisteria is, if you like, the follow-up book on that, although considerably more than we could get into 90 minutes of radio, telling the story from really 2,000 years ago, but concentrating mainly in the last 400 years on the relationship between science and religion, it being an entangled relationship. Very importantly, I didn't want to replace a story of unbridled conflict with one of unbridled harmony, which would be as disingenuous a move. I wanted to tell a story that was true to the historical data that we have. Brilliant. And so we wanted to spend a bit of time in this podcast thinking through some of those half-truths and kind of myths that you've been discussing about the kind of supposed conflict between religion and science. And I guess for a lot of us, certainly for me, growing up, you kind of imbibe this sense. It's often told through individual stories or kind of case studies. You know, the ones that jump to mind would be supposedly, you know, uh, the Catholic Church and Galileo and this idea that they were hugely hostile to any kind of scientific exploration of the heavens because they wanted to defend the idea of the earth being the center of the universe and and that kind of thing, or or likewise, you know, Columbus and the earth being round and having to kind of battle against religious superstition about the earth being flat and and these kind of things. Do, are these kind of so kind of stories actually re relevant in the big history, or, or, or are these going to be pulled out just as a kind of Sunday school version of the truth? Well, I mean, they're Sunday school versions of the truth, and they're, they're relevant in the in the big history. That's the that's the tragedy about them. So, just take one of the most best known examples: the idea that when Copernicus decentered the Earth from the cosmos, shall we say, back in fifteen forty three, human beings felt themselves decentered and demoted. Simply not true. In fact, that was invented by Freud in the late nineteenth century who posited that there were three great scientific revolutions that had decentered the human from the middle of our conceptual universe. The first was Copernicus, who spatially decentered us. The second was Darwin, who historically decentered us. And the third, lo and behold, was Sigmund Freud, who had <laughs> psychologically decentered us from ourselves. It was not a disinterested piece of historical scholarship. It wasn't historical scholarship <laughs> at all. Nobody in the 16th century, thought, oh my goodness, Copernicus 
has decentered us, has replaced the geocentric cosmos with a heliocentric cosmos. Therefore, human beings are less important because we're not in the middle. That simply wasn't the case. If anything, being decenters, decentered, promoted us because being at the centre of the cosmos, according to the 16th century Aristotelian view, was the part that, to quote one source from the time, a vile excrementary place to be, to be in the sub-lunar, the underneath the moon part of the cosmos, where you were in a geocentric universe, was the worst place to be. So there is no sense, for example, that Copernicus's De Revolutionibus demoted humans. It created some tensions, but that was one of the myths that grew up many, many years later. So a lot of what seems to be going on Nick, you know, in in the big picture, is a lot of retrospective. It, it's it's taking modern ideas and then just looking backwards, um, and uh, and then reinventing the past really to fit with current thinking. And and a, a lot of that, I think, that new way of thinking can be tra- is often traced to the Enlightenment, isn't it? That, that at that point, the kind of the the fundamental idea that religion is just quotes you know again an anachronistic term but that that religion is a kind of superstition a primitive um and unintelligent superstition and at last human beings are being able to throw off the um the past and now enter into a brave new world where we just face the truth that that's a very potent idea, isn't it? And which once that idea is there, you then look back and you say, "Oh well, we can see, we can see where this has come from," and so on. Is that fair? It is fair, but you need to start pulling apart various bits of that historical detail. So the first point to make is the Enlightenment is a very big and slippery beast here, and it looked very different in different countries, and particularly with regard to science and religion. So here's an unappreciated fact. The Enlightenment was, in Britain, the period of greatest harmony between science and religion. This was a century in which there were innumerable books published proving the existence of God, or at very least the harmony of the Christian faith with the world as we saw it. In France, it was a very different story for complex reasons that we probably don't have to go into there, but largely around the space available for intellectual freedom, which was much more capacious in the 18th century in Britain, whereas in France, much education was still wedded to an outmoded Aristotelianism. So you're right, some of these roots can be traced to the Enlightenment, but not all of them, and certainly not to the British Enlightenment, but more important than that was that in the 18th century, even when there was this potential for tension that you're talking about there, that some schools of thought were progressive and looked towards a better future, others were more conservative and held on towards a religious past, that was still only in the world of ideas. Because frankly, in the 18th century, science hadn't achieved anything. It was in the 19th century, and particularly in the middle third, say, that actually the physical as well as the mental landscape of Western Europe began to change. And it became clear that science wasn't simply a question of seemingly understanding the processes of the world better. 
but being able to manipulate and control them. And that's when, if you like, they started paying on the dividend of the progressive promises of science. And it's no accident that this was the period, talking roughly from about 1850 to 1900, broadly speaking, where you get the most genuine tension between science and religion, because science is assuming the authority seat within society. I guess one of the questions that comes to my mind immediately is, is it fair to talk about what comes before that period as even science as we would understand it, you know, because clearly, you know, everyone until the year, you know, circa 1700, who did anything scientific was probably automatically, you know, in the Western world, someone who believed in some kind of religion, you know, and that's even beyond the Western world, because you might have, you know, you know, the great legacy in, in, in the Islamic Middle East of, you know, algebra and mathematics and astrology and things like that. So, and clearly, you know, everyone who did all the running in terms of what they would understand as science throughout the medieval era would have also had seen no conflict with their own belief in, in God. They were mostly monks and scholars anyway. Should, should we see what they were doing in monasteries in, you know, 12th century Northern Italy as science? Or is it actually only with the invention of the kind of modern experimental scientific method and, you know, accurate measurement and all that stuff that we can actually say, this is real science. And at this point, it starts to diverge from the other kind of source of intellectual activity, which was religion? So the short answer is you definitely can see it as science. The slightly longer answer is what is science? Um, <laughs> this is a messy one. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm currently writing the book, which is coming out OUP in a couple of years time on basically what is science and what is religion? Because it makes no sense whatsoever to say, I think science and religion are compatible or incompatible or whatever else, unless you have some idea of what science mm. is and what religion mm. is. And not to give you too much of a spoiler here, but there is no such thing as science. There are sciences that rest on slightly different forms of the scientific method and various different presuppositions. Historically, you're absolutely right. It was known as natural philosophy, but there was also medicine and there was mathematics and there was natural theology as well. um, And there were other disciplines. And they kind of just got hoovered up under the umbrella of science in the singular in the 19th century, which became a thing which it wasn't beforehand. Having said that, you can trace certain filaments that run throughout its history. The examination of the natural world on, importantly, naturalistic principles, in other words, closed causality, A causes B causes C, that is inherent in the scientific method But it's also inherent in some of the natural philosophy you get in the Middle Ages, sometimes quite in the early Middle Ages. I discovered, well, I discovered, for me, I discovered a group of scientists, in inverted commas, natural philosophers, technically known as the physici, so the the studies of students of physics in as early as the 12th century, who are explicitly saying the universe is law-governed, it is ordered, it is rule bound and it is governed by natural causes. And that is how we study it. Now, the big difference is that the experiment, as we now call it, wasn't really a thing at the time. There were some scholars towards the end of the Middle Ages who were approaching towards that. But where natural philosophy shifts to science is via experimental or experiential natural philosophy in the 17th century. 
And that's why we consider that the period of the scientific revolution, because when you interject a controlled, ordered manipulation of reality, which is what the experiment effectively is, then you're moving much closer to what we today consider to be science. So one of the most interesting things <clears throat> and problematic things is this separation, which we see very clearly now into these two cultures um, of the scientific world, <clears throat> which, you know, focuses on, yeah, as you say, it's a whole lot of different kinds of sciences, ranging all the way from social sciences through to the hard sciences and so on. And then you get this other world, which is, you know, variously called the world of culture, the world of humanities. Um, and, and and what's happened is that the whole educational process, the way you you have to choose fairly early on, you know, am I basically doing science? In which case, I'm afraid the default posi position is basically most of that other stuff is just for the birds. I mean, you know, there's nothing to see here. You know, forget it. Get on and do the serious stuff. The rest of it is stamp collecting, <laughs> as someone once famously said. <laughs> so where does that come from? And, 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 and because it's very, very powerful, isn't it, now? It's still, you know, even though people have talked about it. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I mean, C.P. Snow famously gave a lecture called The Two Cultures back in 59, I think it was, in which he talked about you know, the, a serious divergence um, between um, well, he was talking about the cults of the humanities and, and the sciences. Um, and it predates that very significantly. Um, I mean, it's, it is, as you rightly say, a thoroughly, you know, a largely artificial division. So one of the things that has come across very clear in the various interviews I've been doing for this subsequent book is um, a point that dear Tom McLeish, no longer, sadly no mm. longer with us, makes repeatedly and so brilliantly, which is you can't be a serious scientist without imagination, yeah, just, without creativity. Yeah, Tom McLeish, just so people know, was a, a very, very high-powered and respected physicist, a fellow of the Royal Society here in the UK, which is the highest scientific accolade, but who was also a very committed and active christian yeah yeah and and wrote two fantastic books on the culture of science and in particular the relationship between science and the humanities and emphasizing the point that as i said creativity and imagination are central to science and the flip side of that if you understand science to be the rigorous application of in principles and intelligence and the careful examination and marshalling of data, then there is absolutely nothing unscientific about process of hermeneutics or indeed theology or you know, literary theory, which belong to the other side of the fence. Now, I'm not suggesting the two are basically the same because they're not. But the idea that there is some kind of, you know, Berlin Wall between them, mm. separating one mm. from the other is um, unnecessary and, and untrue. I do also wonder whether... You know the American, um, the American approach uh, has has plays a lot here. The American American philosophy, which is a kind of progressivist, optimist, pragmatic, can do. I mean, I was rereading something that Henry Ford wrote. You know, which is which is trivialized as, as saying history is bunk. Uh, when you actually read what he says, it's even it's even. Stronger than that. He basically <laughs> says there is absolutely nothing to learn. We have nothing to learn from the past. We are starting again in the white heat 
of manufacture and science and productivity and we are go we are you know and we are inventing the future as we go you know and and although that's obviously an incredibly extreme position i can't help feeling that a lot of that thought and attitude that that um you find in technology and in in scientists that basically don't waste your time there's nothing to learn there just let, let's get on with with inventing the future let me give you a quote there can be few fields of human endeavor in which history counts for so little as in the world of finance <laughs> that's a quote from jk galbraith now it is no accident that the world of finance repeatedly, roughly speaking, every generation implodes. <laughs> there might conceivably be a connection there. If you, you know, the very familiar comment about those who are, what was it, ignorant of history are condemned to repeat it. Mm. But what fascinates me is that this, you know, we're all kind of agreeing that this is an artificial divide and that really, you know, as you, as you say, Nick, there, there's lots in common between things that we do in theology and, and the humanities and things we do in science. But there are plenty of people on the kind of religion side of the fence who have actually embraced and welcomed this this kind of sense and said, you know what, we don't want to compete with science and say we're both looking for the same kind of truth. There are lots of religious people and religious kind of ideas that have said, yeah, yeah, we're about faith. And, you know, and if you had reasons, it wouldn't be faith and therefore it wouldn't be real religion. And, and you know, let science go out and do their thing and we'll kind of carve off our own separate world because we're asking different questions and we're seeking different things do you think that's a fundamentally kind of flawed enterprise just kind of um, embrace the division i think it's a confused one as much as anything else really so it assumes for a start that the realm of science is the one of established truths well if you speak to any scientist particularly any philosopher of science they will point out that the whole strength of science is its epistemic humility they call it the sense that this is the best fit what we have at the moment and but we're always questioning and always doubting it now you don't want to push this too far i've interviewed many many scientists who say yes that's what we say in theory in practice nobody goes out looking to disprove their own work it doesn't happen and contrary to what the image says no scientist thanks her rival when she comes up and says i've disproved your life's work it doesn't work like that but there is something about the fact that the way in which we treat science as if it's gospel does at least philosophically confuse what science is and the second point science absolutely hinges on hypotheses and theories well hypotheses and theories are models of reality that are currently underdetermined by the evidence available. That's not a million miles away from what you would call a sensible view of faith. The, the other view of faith is that I, 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 don't, I don't want to hear the evidence. I don't want to, don't need anybody else telling me I'm just going to leap out because I know from faith it's going to be, well, okay, yes, I'm sure there are plenty of people who do hold faith like that, but it's not one that I, I, I recognise. So, again, I don't want to say there's too much here, and I might come on in a minute and say well, there are genuine tension points, and I think they're the most interesting. But some of the cliched ones, like you just you know, re referred to there, Tim, that one of them's about knowledge, the other one's about faith, doesn't really, to my mind, understand either science or religion properly. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and uh, one of the things I've sometimes tried to argue in public is that it takes a lot of faith to be a scientist you've got to believe there's an external world out there you've got to believe 
that that external world has basic rules. Uh, and then most amazing of all, I've got to believe that my bit of mush between my ears is capable of comprehending and understanding what the rules are. And also then I'm free to create experiments and hypotheses and so on. And that, and that your bit of mush between your ears, which is evolved to survive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I, I think there's a strong coincidence of survival and truth. Basically, I think you're more likely to survive if your conceptions of the world are true. But there's no absolute link and causality there. Absolutely. And, and I've often made the point there's absolutely no reason why... You, Yes, you're right that this bit of mush between our ears is, is, but it's designed to make you help you survive on the African savanna to find berries and to work out when the tiger's going to leap out and, and eat you. But it's not designed to work out the fundamental physical constants and the nature of what, the way that, si that space and time interweave and, you know, these abstract equations that no one can work about. They came out of the same mush and they turn out to be able to describe the most abstract and, and unimaginable realities of the way that galaxies and quasars and black holes interact. I mean, how does that work? Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. So I guess we've kind of heard, Nick, you're kind of uh, slightly dismantling or unpacking, <laughs> complicating of the theory that science and religion have, have always been in this kind of eternal tension and that they're fundamentally opposed. But why did that idea get so stuck? You know, why were there people in the you know Victoria, late Victorian era writing these incredibly influential books you described and, and pulling the wool over our eyes so effectively? What was their motivation or what was driving them to make the case, the erroneous case, that science and faith are this kind of dichotomy? Inevitably, in answering a question that's as broad as that, there are various different ways, various different kind of approaches. I think the simplest one is that, look, put it this way. If you were to go to the beginning of the 18th century and look in the English-speaking world for someone doing science, there's a good chance you would delight on an Anglican cleric. If you were to scroll forward even 70 years, 
from that. In fact, you could put that to 1820, so between 1820 and 1870, scroll forward 50 years, they wouldn't be an ordained Anglican. They would be close to a professional scientist. The word scientist was only coined in 1834 in English. And that's an indication of a profession coming into being. Now, that profession was clearly subservient to the natural philosophers, brackets, Anglican clerics, beforehand. But you scroll forward half a century or so, you find out that they are in the driving seat. So much of what's happening in the middle of the 19th century is a resting of social and intellectual authority away from those who had held it for a long time to scientists. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this because there are other things going on there. And the eruption of the idea of a scientifically respectable form of evolution in 1859 through Darwin's book does play a role, although, brackets, not as significant a role as it comes in the cliché. But the important point is not so much the scientists have moved into a position of intellectual and social authority, but that then a lot of religious figures resist that. So in the 1860s and 70s, science, which is mixed up with technological progress that I was talking about earlier, and modernity and increasing pressures for political liberalism gets tied into one bundle. And then a whole host of more conservative clerics, and not least the papacy under Pius IX, rebels against this and says, religion, properly speaking, should not have any truck with modernity and political liberalism and progress and science. And therefore, religion, in some forms, sets itself against this scientifically-led development of the modern world. And so towards the end of the 19th century, you have science which is achieving extraordinary things and is genuinely pointing forward to a better future, being opposed by certain clerical and, in particular, Catholic resistance. And what happens is there has been a very, very long-standing Protestant attack on Catholicism dating way back to the Reformation, which had picked up the Galileo affair in the 17th century and used it as Protestant propaganda, saying, oh my goodness me, look at these Catholics, they're so backward. What happens in the 19th century is that secularists then pick up mm. Protestants' anti-Catholicism and then deploy it against Christianity and religion as a whole. That so blows up so in first, a Protestant's faces, effectively. It absolutely does. <laughs> Their weapon is used against them. And the first and most influential book here, 1876, by um, John William Draper, um, uh, History of the Warfare Between Science and Religion, I think, I always forget the title, um, actually has less to say, has nothing to say about Islam, has less to say about Protestantism, but goes for Catholicism crazily. And, and, and that's what's going on there. There are certainly intellectual tensions underneath the surface, but he and others pick up what's going on at the moment and uses that as a lens through which to view the previous 2,000 years of history. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because it points out, you know, at, that one of the big roots here is, is just the power dynamic you know, that, that ultimately the Roman Catholic Church is viewed as this immense uh, source of power that, is, that has dominated the medieval period, and it's all to do with the Christian faith. And now we've got this new 
force this that is that is the future and that is completely different that has a different authority structure and and so ultimately then it, it's, it's so easy to see how it just caricatures into these two power bases and uh, and who's going to win and, and it's a zero-sum game isn't it yeah absolutely is our success depends on on their defeat so fast forwarding you know just just into to the future uh sorry into the present you, you know you, you've talked to a lot of people you've talked to a lot of scientists you've talked to a lot of people about perceptions of science um you know what what's what struck you what surprised you as, as you've had these conversations um you know particularly with the scientists um, uh, some of whom i would imagine are fairly eccentric and interesting people well the project that I've been working on, or the research for this was um, a few years ago now, we're still writing up, interviewed 100 or so leading scientists in the UK and philosophers of science and sociologists and religious uh, studies, um, academics and so on and so forth. The the objective of the study was to uh, understand what they understood science to be and what they understood religion to be and therefore where they thought the tension between them lay. And, and, and that was fascinating. The majority of people we spoke to were non-believers because we wanted to speak to people really who thought there was a problem there. We didn't want to speak to people who said, no, no, everything's fine between science and religion. The whole objective of the project was, what exactly are we arguing about here? Can we move away from the rhetoric and pinpoint exactly what we're arguing about? And that's why, you know, to, to be absolutely honest here and to have intellectual integrity, so much of the time I spent the last six months or so is in picking apart what are, you know, Genuine tension points between science and religion. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very clearly on the side of, if there is science here, on the side of harmony rather than the side of conflict. But I don't want to be on the side of harmony at the expense of intellectual integrity. And there are um, genuine kind of metaphysical and epistemological and anthropological and social tension points or fronts, if you like, between these, between these two territories and Many of the people I spoke to really helped me understand where they were. Interestingly, and this was, this was the thing that did surprise me, despite the fact that the 100 or so scientists we spoke to were disproportionately not religious and disproportionately atheist, they were also more likely to see harmony between science and religion than the general public the general public broadly speaking sees a two to one in favor of tension over harmony conflict over harmony these experts we spoke to were the other way round. two to one when proportion of science and religion are not in conflict but and here's the killer question what's your concept of religion then because there are various different ways you can understand religion and a very simplistic way you can understand it substantively or functionally. Substantively means it's got some content to it. Functionally means it's about a function in society. It's about ritual, it's about ethics, it's about community, it's about culture. If the cost of the harmony that you see between science and religion is defining religion in a solely ritualistic or solely functional way, a lot of religious people will say, mm, I don't quite buy that. So, so often it comes down to this question of what do you actually understand science to be? Mm. 
what do you understand religion to be? That's really interesting. That reminds me of a, a conversation I had uh, with Martin Rees, who very prominent, uh, you know, he was the astronomer royal. Uh, One of our interviewees, in fact. Yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised. And he, uh, a very interesting man, very open to conversation with Christians, uh, has been involved with many conversations at the Farrell Institute. And and basically, this is slightly uh, caricature what he said. He he said, you know, he he absolutely loved going to church. He loved the entire uh, environment, the beauty, the music, the sense of wonder, the mystery, and so on. Um, you know, so so uh, religion was great apart from the metaphysics. I mean, you know, <laughs> once you get into the nature of re- ultimate reality well of course you know that's that's astronomy that's science that's but but the beauty and the tradition and the, and the music is wonderful yes yeah yeah i mean he said as much to us and obviously i can't divulge the actual content of interviews but you know he effectively says at one point much rather end my days in an english country churchyard than a californian refrigerator hoping to be thawed out at some point in the future <laughs> yes, i could heartily say an amen to that <laughs> But you know, his, his, there are many interviewees we spoke to who um, honed in on this metaphysics point that, okay, look, here's a tension between science and religion. Ultimately, science is naturalistic. Ultimately, religion is supernaturalistic. We have many, many people. That's, that's a blunt thing. I, however much sympathy I have with religion, culturally, whatever else, there is a fundamental difference here. And pitch that way, yeah, there's absolute tension there. But then you start probing about what, what naturalism is. Oh boy, is that hard to define? How does naturalism dif- differ from physicalism or materialism? Uh, and ultimately, all too often, you got the idea: well, naturalism—difficult I, I, to pinpoint what it is—but it's it, it's not supernaturalism. Okay, what's supernaturalism? Well, sexual sexual difficult to pinpoint what it is, but it's not naturalism. And you begin to realise that actually these th- these terms become self-fulfilling prophecies because they're defined against one another. And furthermore some of the theologians we end up speaking to say i don't like the term supernaturalism because it denotes a kind of a split level cosmos where you know god occasionally stumbles downstairs interferes with what's going on in the party and goes back upstairs again i don't like that that's not the image i have and then you have some of the philosophers of science saying i'm not comfortable with naturalism how it's conceived because there are there are elements of quantum theory or string theory or some of the more extreme versions of physics that just rub up against the edge of naturalism so you get scientists arguing against naturalism and theologians arguing against supernaturalism so you begin to see how messy this whole thing is now and i think that's important and perhaps just for to try and unpack that a bit for people who aren't heavily into philosophy and so on i mean basically what what's going on here is that even if you are a very hard-nosed physicalist, there is nothing in the universe but material stuff, you've still got lots of problems, you know, because there seem to be these mysterious laws and rules by which the universe operates, and they have an extraordinary beauty and symmetry, and they seem to exist outside the material world, and why do they operate, and where do they come from? And, you know, so there's a deep deep problem which which is what the philosophers continue to debate don't they about what is ultimate reality yeah yeah so we had um some people say to me you know um again fully paid up atheist um uh, um, philosophers saying uh you know i abhor the kind of materialist view that 
some of my peers hold to because it's basically Newtonianism from the 18th century in which you view the world as a series of billiard balls banging against one another. You know, that is not the view we have of reality today. A, a, a materialist view in that sense um, you know, ignores forces, ignores laws, and it has um, problems with kind of mathematical principles. One of the uh, interviewees we spoke to, who was one of the most cogent and coherent and forceful of the atheist naturalists, openly said, you know, naturalism has problems with minds, morals, modal logic, and mathematics, which is a very, very neat way of putting it. Now, all of those are, 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 are contentious, mm-hmm. and you, you can debate against one. I, I was having a, um, a discussion with Daniel Dennett, who's recently published a book, very famous atheist, American um, analytic philosopher, um, one of the kind of new atheist four horsemen and a fully paid up naturalist and similar discussion about what does naturalism do with mathematical laws, mathematical constants and, and modal logic. You know, it's, it, it really struggles with that. doesn't mean it's wrong, but it doesn't, it means it's not necessarily the obvious go-to place. It's not the obvious comfortable home for, um, for, for science. Yeah, one of the great quotes which I often bring out is from John Polkinghorne, who's a very well-known uh, Christian uh, who was absolutely on the cutting edge of, of quantum physics and all that. Um, and he said, what modern physics has taught us is, is that not only is reality stranger uh, than we used to think, reality is stranger than we can think. Yeah, I think, isn't that not an Einstein quote, actually? Did John nick it from, I, I know I've heard that in, from several places, but yeah, I think that, that's absolutely right. But it, but it, and this goes back to that epistemic humility, isn't it? You know, you know, that, that, that actually there's mystery here. There's deep, mm. deep, deep wells here that the puny human mind uh, is just incapable of, of ultimately grasping and and therefore you know a sense of wonder a sense of the beauty the mystery um is actually not not unknown in 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 real science oh absolutely absolutely i mean shot through so 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 many people we speak to but it's important to as it were pull apart different understandings of the word mystery or different ways the word mystery is used sometimes the word mystery is used to say wow that's really complicated and we're not going to be capable of understanding it and sometimes it's used to mean that is awe-inspiring and beautiful and at the moment incomprehensible, and it acts as a spur to further investigation. I'm wedded to the second sense of mystery, less so the first. Sometimes the word mystery has been used as a kind of get-out-of-jail card free, you know, and um, you know, this is mysterious. Oh, that means there's, there's no way of understanding it. Well, OK, there's no guarantee we can understand it, but the, 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 the mystery that provokes awe and wonder should be used as a springboard for further deployment of human intelligence, which is equally wondrous. Yeah, I totally agree with you. But I would also say that, and that's at at its root what good theology is also, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, God and the nature of the Godhead and the Trinity and the meaning of the cross, you know, these are all mysteries, but they're not there for you just say, oh, well, don't bother, you know. To, to spend your life trying to probe and understand and de- and increase your understanding of these mysteries is is rightly seen as a very positive thing to do. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. Alas, not one that has been sufficiently absorbed by 
many believers, past, present, and I dare say future. <laughs> and this is where you know one of the criticisms that regularly came in these in these interviews was voiced. You know that the cliched view was that you know scientists embrace epistemic humility, whereas religious people are you know are dogmatic. Okay, that's a cliche. But like many cliches, there was some truth behind it. And you know a bit more epistemic humility would do quite a few religious believers <laughs> a bit of good. Yeah, and amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> Lot, we've heard a lot of uh, names flying around. Some, you know, we've mentioned people like Galileo and Darwin and Einstein, um, and it's kind of fascinating. I think how many of those had really complicated relationships with faith themselves. You know, and that even someone like Darwin, who is often held up as the kind of the linchpin of this assault that like cut the legs out from underneath religion, himself had quite a complicated relationship with with faith can you say a little bit about that and what came out when you were researching that that particular kind of these individual characters and their own stories yeah i mean they are all fascinating i mean first thing to say is the idea that they're all campaigning against the faith is transparently nonsense i mean it's it's not even worth denying it's so so nonsensical but a lot of them had kind of eccentric or edgy relationships with the faith Galileo was undoubtedly devout but had to do quite a lot of finessing and also critically importantly needed to show how the authority of mathematics which had a very pretty low position in the pecking order at the time could overturn established theological truths so there was a a, a faith there but there was also some intellectual tension with the accepted kind of hierarchies within the church Newton was very devout in his own way, wrote far more on theology than he ever did on um, mechanics and mathematics, but didn't publish it because he was basically an Arian. He was, by the time, the sound of the time, a a heretic who um, was very doubtful about the divinity of Christ and the existence of of the Trinity. Darwin had famously trained to be a a clergyman in Cambridge in the 1820s and 30s. Um, never took his degree because he went on the Beagle instead. And it was only ever a very lukewarm faith that he basically did in order to get a rectory and a good research budget for his Beagles. Um, he, he, he did lose his faith. Um, it was partly because of his the- theory. Um, it was partly because of the death of his daughter, Annie. Um, but he was explicit right to the point that he died that you could be both a theist and a Darwinist. In fact, he wrote to a correspondent two years, three years before he died, a guy called John Fordyce, in which he said, I find it absurd to believe, absurd to deny that you can be, that, 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 that you can do, do both. But he had definitely, definitely wandered away from orthodox Christianity a good 20 or 30 years before he died. And then Einstein um, was in absolutely no way, shape or form an orthodox believer at all. Um, and you know, in some recently publicized letters quite explicitly denounced the fairy tale nature as he saw it of the of old testament stories but couldn't stop talking about the subject and you do have some sympathy with those who thought he was on their side because he relentlessly headed towards spiritual and religious language and seemingly not only as a kind of a rhetorical device but it's something that's slightly more, more central. So you can't really pigeonhole Einstein for any particular camp in this debate. Hmm. And, and we've talked a little bit about, you know, you've talked about the scientists that you interviewed and their views on faith. 
coming into land then what do you find when you look at the the church the other side of the equation what does the average christian today not a scientist themselves someone like me you know humanities degree what did you think how, how do you see the church today in its relationship with the sciences you know because we've been talking in on the podcast in recent times about you know growing skepticism we did, we did a recent episode about the origins of covid and and um you know understandably people are a little frustrated to discover that you know it it, it might be a bit more complicated than, than we were first told and and some some aspects of the sign of establishment kind of colluded to tell a more simplified version of the truth and you have similar fears around issues like climate change it's very contentious christians are sometimes falling towards the more kind of anti-expert end of the spectrum how do you see the landscape today yeah. from the christian side <clears throat> So I think there are two things to say here. First is that it is infinitely better than the uh, sort of cliched view that was perpetrated in, in the whole New Atheist movement, which somehow saw religion as this um, unified, threatening, backward-looking, obscurantist movement against scientific truth and you only need to look at creationism in the u.s as an example of that well you know that's it's still even in the u.s you know that's the exception rather than law and for the most part religious christian engagement with science is positive and there are certainly very good movements at class in this country equipping christian leaders in the leadership of science in places like the faraday institute and and biologos in the us and so on and so forth that are very positive in that engagement and i think for the most part Christian engagement with science is a very positive but and here's the second point John Evans who is a uh, an academic in the US has pointed out in looking at the relationship between the two in the US is that there are as he puts it an elite discourse around science and religion and a popular discourse around science and religion and the elite discourse focuses on the kind of things that you know, epistemology and metaphysics and evolutionary theory and so on and so forth really interesting stuff to elites intellectual academic elites the vast majority of people don't really give a rat's ass about that kind of stuff if i'm being brutally honest with you they encounter science through the media and therefore their encounter of science is not in this pure unmediated scientific method or epistemic humility or anything like that it's what science doing with genetics what science doing with regards um uh, vaccines what science doing with regard to climate change etc etc it's the social practical political cultural impact of science on our lives and that gets a lot more complicated because when science is then involved not just in furthering knowledge but in developing systems of control and reordering uh, practical technology around me that has an impact on my life i'm no longer judging science as this disinterested highly achieving methodology but as an active social force in itself now the vast majority of times that's a very positive social force if you just do a google news search on the word scientist you will come across headline after headline which about scientists have discovered this have achieved this have managed that all positive but sometimes it becomes a bit murkier and we saw this around the pandemic and you, know, you see it around GM crops. You see it around genetic technologies. We're going to see it much, much more around genetic modification in the future. And then the public attitude to science gets a bit more hesitant and sometimes outright sceptical. 
and just as a concluding point, because I've got a book coming out next year talking about playing God and science and religion in the future of humanity, this is going to be the focus in the 21st century. The fact that science will be able to understand and control and manipulate the human to an unprecedented level in the 21st century will invite the question, how far should it go? And what even is the human in the first instance? And that's a debate that I think religious thought has an enormous amount to contribute to. Yeah, and, and what really has struck me, you know, working as a, a medical scientist, uh, is how it changed in the course of my career, how early on in my career, basically, you were just left to get on with it and, you know, publish some good papers and, and so on. And increasingly, the university and the funders say, the most important thing you need to do, yeah, you need to publish good papers, but you've really got to tell your story to the general public in a way which will encourage people to fund. It will attract interest. It will affect, attract charitable donations to science charities. It will encourage the government to increase our funding. You know, we have to tell the story. And so universities, you know, then develop these science media departments. They they, you know, there's there's this whole social enterprise which is about telling your story, and and now this is called impact, you know, and that and that future grant applications you have to say what your impact is, and and therefore, unfortunately, this this does become a a, a potentially very corrupting um, force because now it's all about telling a story and telling a story the general public can hear, and also not to frighten the horses. So, fascinatingly. You know, the uh, I was part of discussions about um, precisely this issue about uh, how we were going to sell genetic modification uh, of humans uh, to the public, research into this area, and so on. And and it was compared with what happened about uh, genetic modification of foods, uh, which some years ago. Um, you know, scientists tried to introduce genetic modification of foods uh, into the UK and into Europe. And there was this massive public backlash and it was all about Frankenstein foods and so on. And as a result, the genetic modification of foods got put back decades in Europe compared with the USA. And all the British scientists were saying, you know, this was a disaster. We must never do this again. In future, we're going to manage the public uh, discussions so much more carefully so we don't get Frankenstein humans mm. yeah it, it's, it's really interesting and to hear from your point of view um, you know there are um, as you <clears throat> outline very strong arguments on, on both sides uh, I have to say on balance I am um, strongly no on balance I'm pro the if you like the embedding of science just science what we've been talking about in public debates um, but you're right to point out there are risks. And also, if public debate is pretty raw and unhealthy, as we've got to be honest, it is, then you're not so much opening up the science to considered reflection as to hysterical headlines. And that carries with it its own danger. So you have to balance that with the idea that science, particularly of this nature, is not socially disinterested. It has enormous repercussions. It has <laughs> very heavily public funded, apart from anything else. So the public has a right to know and contribute and say to it. 
Um, but you know, its implications are enormously socially significant, and therefore, for better or worse, it does need to be embedded in and debated by um, wider public opinion. But that does come with its own dangers. Hmm. And this, you know, very neatly ties in with what we talked about last time about, you know, the whole the gain of function research on coronaviruses that was happening around the world, including in in China, and whether or not that did lead to the pandemic. We don't know. We may never know. But it was disturbing to me to discover that, you know, in 2015, these scientific elites were having conversations internally about whether they should create these kind of bioengineered super viruses that don't exist in nature, but if they did, would be devastating for humans. And that was a debate that happened largely without any kind of democratic oversight and any kind of, you know, cutting in the billions of us who would live with the consequences if it went wrong. So, um, yeah, I think there's certainly... You know, I, I'm very much on the side of, you know, Christians should be pro-science people, pro-truth people. We should be excited by 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 science. But I can understand why there is a degree of scepticism or at least concerns around, you know, the, what to what extent is science become a slightly abstracted elite occupation done over the heads of ordinary people. And, and uh, you know, so much of what you say there hinges ultimately on how what we understand science to be. Um, and maybe I keep on going back to this because it's occupying so much, so much of my time. But you know, if you understand it to be a disinterested search for knowledge about the world, fine. I mean, you know, you've got to be off your rocker to object to that. If conversely you understand it to be a, a, a necessary and sufficient way of understanding the world and manipulating and controlling it, because basically, what's ethics except for stamp collecting? Then, then you're then you're in real then you're in real trouble. Yeah. Yeah, well, we could definitely talk about this for hours, couldn't we? It's a really fascinating topic, but we'll have to draw it to a close there. Um, thanks so much, Nick, for coming on and talking us through Magisteria. Um, really recommend uh, anyone interested in this topic, try, do try and get a hold of a copy. We'll put links to, to how you can get it in, in, the, um, in the notes. And um, yeah, looking forward to playing God, your, your next title next year. We'll hopefully get you back on, on the podcast to talk about the, the coming... I, just century. to clarify, yeah, we're, we're not... Just to clarify, Tim, we're not looking forward to playing God. By and large, we're opposed <laughs> to that idea, you know, but, but we're looking forward to the book. The book entitled <laughs> Playing God by Nick Spencer. Um, and uh, and Hannah Waits. I'm co-writing it with a and colleague. And Hannah Waits. Um, and we will look, look forward to uh, hopefully having another chance to have a conversation with you next year, Nick, about, about some of the big ideas in that, which I think, yeah, dovetail with a lot of the things we talk about here on the show week by week. So thanks, you to, thanks for coming on. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope it's been a, an interesting conversation to eavesdrop on. Um, we'll be back next week with a normal episode. Um, but until then, uh, don't forget you can get in touch with us by emailing molads at premier.org.uk. Any questions? things in the news you've seen that you're interested in talking about please do let us know and um don't forget uh, dad's website full of interesting resources and lots of things to do with science and religion uh it's johnwyatt.com but otherwise we'll uh, speak to you next week bye-bye you've been listening to matters of life and death a podcast from premier unbelievable